Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness, and thanks for loving us and taking such good care of us. And, and yet even thanks for warning us. Thanks that you, you know the future and you know how to warn us. What an amazing God you are. And you do it all based on love. And so, Lord, we just want to sit at your feet and hear from you today. So please guide us and lead us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So turn, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 18. Um, here we are in Jeremiah. You know, we've been here for 17 chapters now. And uh, I acknowledge that a lot of it sounds somewhat repetitious, but sometimes God uses repetition for emphasis. Is that fair? And so sometimes uh, that's just how it, how it rolls. And so um, we're going to have more yet warnings of, of uh, trouble to come for the nation of Judah. But uh, just suffice to say, you know, the nation of Judah, uh, God's chosen people, the, the Jewish people, uh, they, they were, you know, God gave them everything they needed to serve him, to give him everything they needed, basically. Gave him every reason to be thankful, let's put it that way. And let's consider that this week of Thanksgiving. God gave them every reason to be thankful. And what does God give us? Every reason to be thankful. And yet they thought, yeah, that's just not good enough. And this is basically, you know, this is the human condition. Mm, we can either choose to be thankful or we can say, mm, that's not good enough. I think I want to go my own direction and I want to go my own way and I want to serve my own gods, whatever those may be. And next thing you know, we find ourselves going our own way, serving those gods, reaping the consequences of it. And because there's always consequences of that. And that is, that is coming to pass in the nation of Judah. And I think uh, I was talking to somebody here at the break. It's pretty, um, I wouldn't say interesting. Interesting might be too soft of a word, but it's pretty compelling, if you will, the parallels of the nation of Judah prior to this coming destruction by the Babylonians and our culture today. We live in a culture today where sin abounds, where lawlessness abounds. And the Bible tells us in advance that that was going to happen. And so we shouldn't be surprised by it or shocked by it or anything like, or, or perplexed even necessarily by it. But it's just reality. We knew it was coming and it's here. And so we see some parallels. And so some of the applications that we see from the nation of Judah, you know, we've got to be very careful. You know, God is God. And so we've got to be very careful when we read the Bible, the Bible is the revealed Word of God, so we learn from the Bible what God has done in the past, and we learn in the Bible kind of who God is, but we've got to be very careful that we don't then say, well, that means God is going to do this, because we don't know what God is going to do unless God specifically tells us in His Word what He's going to do. And so um, sometimes we can put ourselves in the position of God, even as Christians, if we're not careful. And so we just read it for what it is, we learn the lessons for what they are, and we apply it to our lives 
as lessons to us, but we've got to be very careful that, you know, we keep it all in context. Is that fair? All right. Chapter 18, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. And so, starts out, you know, we've talked about along the way, um, you know, there's the person of Jeremiah and there's the message of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet, right? So because of that, he's given prophetic warning to the nation of Judah. He's, he's telling them they need to serve the Lord. They need to stop serving idols. They need, to, they need to follow the Lord and all that. But there's also the life of Jeremiah. There's the, there's the word pictures that God brings into his life. And here's one of them. And he says, you know, he says, I want you to go. And, and interestingly, he tells Jeremiah to go by himself. In chapter 19, he's going to have Jeremiah do uh, a word picture with some of the elders. But in chapter 18 here, he says, I want you to go by, him, by yourself. And so often, so often, I know this is in my life, so often we have to learn a lesson ourselves before we can share it with anybody else. Does that make sense? And so it's a very sort of personal, intimate thing. God says to Jeremiah individually, I want you to go down to the potter's house you know, and just picture like, you know, a potter turning a, a clay thing on a wheel, right? Didn't have to have electricity to pump a potter's wheel back in the day. They had those, right? And um, so Jeremiah's going to go down there. He's going to learn the lesson. And keep in mind now, the message and the person uh, are distinct, but they're not, they, they go hand in hand, I should say it that way. And then I went down to the potter's house. And there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. So Jeremiah goes, God says, I want you to go down to the potter's house and watch this guy for a while. And Jeremiah goes, and he just kind of sits there and watches this guy. And the guy started to make a, I don't know, we'll say he started to make a coffee cup. And, you know, it didn't have the right shape or whatever it was not turning and so he wanted to start over if you're a potter you make it and you got a coffee cup if you're a potter and you got a lump, lump of clay it's turning into a coffee cup but you don't like how it's turning out you're free to smash the clay and start all over right and maybe next time you want to make a vase right i mean this is clay 101 right which is about as much as i know about clay right so he says, the clay was marred. So obviously this is a picture. He's going to tell us here. It's a picture of Judah, the nation of Judah, but it's a picture of all of us, right? We are marred. We are flawed. We are broken. We need a Savior. Now, I want you to notice also, what, notice what the potter doesn't do. It's, kind of, it's, it's implied here, and you might think this is obvious, and maybe it is obvious, but I just want to point it out. He does not throw the clay away and grab a new piece, right? He does not discard the clay and grab a new piece. Does that speak to our lives today? So we're broken. Does God say, yeah, too bad, so sad for you. You're broken. I'm going to find a better one right? Wouldn't that be a sad state? But that's not how God works. God molds us, and God 
sometimes changes us, and sometimes it's, it's, sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it changes our hopes and dreams, right? But God uses the same clay. Notice the clay has inherent value, and so the, so the potter doesn't need to throw it away. It has value because of what God can, what the potter can do with the clay, right? That potter can make whatever he wants out of that lump of clay, as it seems good to the potter. This is underlined in my Bible, as it seemed good to the potter. This is a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty. God is in control of our lives, just like that potter is in control of that clay. That potter can do whatever he wants with that clay. But let me just highlight this. As it seemed good to the potter. See that word, good? See, God is in control of our lives, right? And if God weren't good, then the fact that God is in control of our lives could feel scary. And I don't know about you, but in my life over the years, there have been times when I didn't really fully, and I still don't fully, and will never fully, but you understand what I'm saying. When I didn't really understand sort of the, the character of God as I would say I do now, I kind of had that sense of God is in control, and it frankly kind of scared me a little bit because I knew I was marred, right? And if we have God's control without God's goodness, that's scary. But whenever we talk about God's control, don't ever lose sight of the fact that God is good. God can make another vessel as it seemed good to the potter, and his nature is good, and so he's always going to do that that is good for us. He's not going to use a new lump of clay. He's going to use the same lump of clay in this example, and he's going to make it something good. God does something good in our lives. You know, sometimes, I can just tell you about my life. I'm old enough to tell you this. When I was, uh, I don't know, how old do you want to say? When I was young, we'll say, I had this idea what my life was going to be like when I was 59, right? And, you know, we could say I had hopes and dreams, or we could say this, or we could say it turned out this way or it turned out that way. But along the way, I can look back now and know that there have been times that <laughs> there are times, honestly, God took that lump of clay and you know, said, new game, right? I'm starting over. And there have been times that, you know, the lump of clay, you know, kind of falls off. If you've ever seen a potter, you know, doing this, you know, the clay falls over and he kind of picks it back up. You've seen the potter do that, right? It's kind of about ready to break off. And, you know, that kind of hurts a little bit, right, if I'm the lump of clay. And I've seen, you know, where maybe God's going to poke a hole in me, and that kind of hurts a little bit. But it all is as it seems good. I think of, I um, heard one guy talking about this, and, I, and it resonates with me. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The workmanship, some of you know the Greek word is poema. We get our word poem from it, right? I mean, poem not all of us are poets, right? But a, but a poem is a reflection of what's in the heart of the poet, 
Very much so. And in the same way, we are His workmanship. He is working on us and fashioning us like that lump of clay. And let me just encourage, the reason I'm parking on this a little bit is that as He does that, we might have a role in what's going on, right, to some extent, and we need to be responsible in all this. But I want you to see this idea that God is working in us, and He's working on us, and He's doing that thing just like the potter is doing on the, on the lump of clay. And as He does it, it may not be what we thought it would be like. It may not turn out exactly like we thought it would. But that's okay. That's, act- that's actually even better because He's smarter than we are. And He can do more in us than we could do if we were in charge of things. That's a picture. That's God's sovereignty, right? Now, is there anything weird about that? Is there anything theologically complex about that? Is there anything controversial about that? No. And it shouldn't be. God is in control. God's like the potter on the, you know, working the lump of clay. We're the lump of clay. He's fixing what needs to be fixed. He's changing what needs to be changed. And all along the way, our job is to be moldable, right? If you've seen the potter, right? The clay is like wet. It's moldable. It's, you know, a little wobbly at times. That's okay. And our job is to be moldable. Verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as, with, as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So we said that the, that the vessel could apply to us individually just because of the context of the Scripture. It also, in this setting, applies to the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah. It says, O house of Israel, meaning Israel, the, the northern and southern kingdom collectively, so Judah and Israel. But he's saying, you know, I can, in fact, take this marred nation and start over with it. Now, we know from Israel's history, that's what happened, right? The Babylonians are going to come. They're going to conquer the nation of Israel. It's going to look like everything's looks like they're toast. And yet they'll be carried off into captivity. They'll hang out there for 70 years, and then they'll be restored as if, you know, in the same way as kind of making a new vessel. And I want you to take note just for a second. Is there any other ancient nation that that's happened to? I used to, there's a teacher uh, up in Indianapolis that I love, and he always says stuff like, have you ever met any Philistines lately? Right? You ever met any, you know, he'd go through the whole list. Ever met any Hittites lately? Right? Parasites? Jebusites? Right? Are many Jews lately? Yeah. Why? Because God preserved that nation, right? And so God, you know, took the lump of clay, sent him off to Babylon. He's going to bring out a new vessel. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying it applies to the whole house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring about upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. 
And so here's a picture of, you know, man's responsibility. Man has the, man has the decision-making ability to either repent or not. If, he's, if, if the nation, he says, if, if the nation collectively is not following the Lord, God brings warning, and then the nation relents, right? Then, or the nation repents, then God will relent, God will turn back from his punishment, right? What happened when Jonah went to the nation of, uh, to the city of Nineveh? He preached, the people repented, God held back the judgment, right? We see that in history. And so, uh, and the same is also true, you know, if, if, uh, if a nation turns away from the Lord, like the Jewish people, they followed the Lord in the early days, and then they turned away, and God brings punishment. And so, does that mean God changes his mind all the time, and God's kind of wishy-washy? No, we just got done saying God's in control, right? God's in control. How do those two things go together? Again, we don't fully understand, because God's smarter than we are. But God does give us uh, the ability to repent, and when danger is coming, and God sees it, right, because God sees the future, when danger is coming, God warns us. He gives us opportunity to repent. God desires all of us to repent. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. If you're a sovereignty person, we've talked about this before. If you're a sovereignty person, can I encourage you to memorize Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9? It says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, what God is doing in His dealings with the world, as it tells us in Second Peter, He's not holding back. You ever feel like sometimes, we were talking about this earlier, you feel like this world is, in many ways, feels like it's not going the right direction right? And in many ways, it feels like, man, God ought to lower the boom on us, but He's not. Now, Scripture tells us that there will be a day of reckoning, right? That's a, that's a biblical principle. But why does God seem so infinitely patient? The Lord's not slack concerning His promise. He's not like, He's aware of what's going on. He's not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. He's patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's desire, God's desire is for every human being that's ever existed, because they were born, they were made in the the image of God, God's desire is for every human being to be saved and to come to repentance. But He knows that that all people won't do that. And so, there's judgment and all of that. And so, he always gives opportunity to repent. Now, therefore, verse 11, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord, behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. And so, there's a reality that judgment's coming. In our lives, if we refuse and refuse and refuse and we, and we reject the Lord, reject the Lord, reject the Lord, reject the Lord to the point of death, then there's judgment. That's a biblical truth. In the nation of, of Judah, if they reject the Lord, reject the Lord, reject the Lord as a nation, there's judgment coming. That's a biblical truth played out in the pages of history. 
But along the way, because of God's love, because of God's goodness, because of God's patience, he always sends warning. Always sends warning. And this is merely warning. So you think about it, warning is kind of a paradoxical thing because we think this is a uh, very doom and gloom message, right? We may feel like this is a very, very gloomy message. And yet, warning is really just an opportunity. There's always two ways to look at something, right? Your glass can either be half full or half empty, right? You see, judgment's coming. Well, that doesn't sound like, that's not a very happy message, right? Judgment is coming. But if it gives you opportunity to repent and to avoid that judgment, that's, that glass is very much half full, right? And so that's what he's doing in these, in these pages. And they said, so you want to know how they responded to it? And they said, that's hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans and we will everyone obey the dictates of his evil heart. Here you go. Now, can I tell you this? This is a common excuse. I, I, I kind of, um, what's the word? I sympathize with these guys a little bit on this level because they say, you know, Jeremiah is saying, you guys have turned your back on the Lord. You need to repent and follow the Lord. And they say, that's hopeless. You ever seen in our world today, somebody says, hey, I want you, you know, we, we need to live according to the Scripture, Right? Somebody would say, that's hopeless. You need to go through this life, um, you know, not like it's a law, but just following the Lord faithfully to the end of your life. You might say, that's impossible. Living according to a biblical standard is impossible by human means alone. Right? What do we need in order to walk a life of faithfulness, obedient to the Lord till the day we die. What do we need for that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who comes into the life of the Christian and gives us the strength, the power to live the Christian life. We can't live the Christian life apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, period. So in that regard, yes, it's hopeless. Bummer, right? Bummer. But as believers, we say, Lord, please fill me with your Holy Spirit. And by the way, it doesn't have to be any more exotic than that, right? Luke chapter 11, verse 11 through 13 says, you know, hey, if you fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, you know, when he asks for food, you give him a rock, you know, that whole thing. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So he didn't make you jump through a theological hoop. Just say, Lord, please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Please give me the strength to resist that temptation that is so overwhelming to me. Because if I don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, then I might say, that's hopeless. That's impossible. It's impossible to live a life of purity. Without the Holy Spirit, yeah, that's probably reasonable. It's a reasonable statement. But what these guys said is, it's hopeless, period. We're not going to ask the Lord to help us. We're not going to surrender to the Lord. We're not going to be moldable like clay. We're going to instead walk according to our own plans, and we're going to obey the dictates of our own hearts. We've talked about the dictates of our hearts for, 
enough that I think we've made that point over the last couple weeks. But when the evil heart dictates the behavior, then you got problems. When the evil hearts dictate the behavior, you've got big problems. So if we choose to turn away from the power, as Christians now, talking about the Holy Spirit, if we choose to turn away from the power of the Holy Spirit and choose to say, you know, I can't do it, that's when we get in big trouble. That's when we get in big trouble. And let me just encourage us. I know, I know, I've been there, done that, whatever your thing is. But I know that we all have, you know, sometimes we go to church and, you know, we look around and you guys are all perfect, right? See a bunch of perfect people and then you kind of think, I think the secret's not quite out that they're all perfect except for me. And so I think what I'm going to do is just not tell anybody that I'm not perfect. And so they're all perfect, but I'm not. And so, you know, we'll just kind of let that slide. Is that how that works? No. No. We all find ourselves at this point where, man, I don't know how to put one foot in front of the other. I don't know how to put my pants on one leg at a time. I don't know how to say, dear God, please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Right? So I'll teach you. Okay? Dear God, please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Right? There you go. But there is a thing where in this life, life deals us some difficult challenges. And following the Lord faithfully is very, very difficult. Very difficult. I'm convinced. You show me, and that's why you've heard me say before, I love, I love sitting at the feet of a of an old man who's walked with the Lord for years, for decades. I don't care how smart he is. I don't care how rich he is. I'd love to just hang with, a, with, uh, with an old man that's walked with the Lord for decades. Because that is a supernatural experience. It might feel normal, but it's a supernatural experience for somebody to walk with the Lord faithfully for decades. It requires the power of the Holy Spirit. It can't be done on human terms. Human speaking, humanly speaking, it's impossible. So, don't walk away from His power. If we walk away from His power, the only recourse we have is to obey the dictates of our own evil heart, and we don't want to do that. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask now among the Gentiles, who's ever heard of such things? The virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. Will a man leave the snow water of Lebanon, which comes from the rock of the field? Will the cold flowing waters be forsaken for strange waters? And so, you know, he says, ask among the Gentiles, all the non-Jews, ask among the other nations, right? Sometimes, you know, we get, you know, the the, the Jewish culture just kind of knew their own thing. They said, ask somebody else, ask an outsider, get an outside opinion. Has there anybody ever taken the, the mountain spring water, right? You think of those like beer commercials, whatever, the, I forget what it is. The, the clear mountain spring water, right? That flows down, that's the picture they're giving you here. The snow water of Lebanon that would flow down and be crystal clear, right? The melting snow and the, and the natural springs that would flow down into the valley. And would you trade that for like scum water? No, who would do that, right? Nobody would do that. Why would you trade a relationship with God Almighty for something that's infinitely inferior, right? 
And for us and for our lives, sometimes we, we can do that. Because sometimes we, as, we, as we follow the Lord, we feel like, mm, that's just, it just seems so old-fashioned. It just seems so, so plain. And this life of sin seems so much more fun, and it seems so much more exciting, and it seems so much this or that or whatever. And next thing you know, we've traded the clear water for the scum. Be careful. Be very careful. Verse 13, because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to worthless idols and have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from their ancient paths to walk in pathways and not on a highway to make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. I will scatter them as with the east wind before the enemy. I'll show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. So God is predicting now there's going to be... um, punishment coming. I'm going to make their land desolate. I'm going to bring them trouble. I'm going to bring uh, destruction. And uh, he knows that's going to happen because he knows they're not going to repent, right? But I want you to notice where it started. Verse 15, look at this, please. And I say this to Christians. I say this to Christians that uh, are walking and talking with the Lord. It says here, why, does this, why is all this destruction coming? Well, because they've, they've turned their back on me and they've burned incense to worthless idols and they've rejected the, rejected the Lord. But why did they do that? Back to verse 15, because my people have forgotten me. Forgotten me. Let's paraphrase that. They took me for granted. They took me for granted. You've heard me say before, in any relationship, in any relationship, I think the greatest danger is to take someone for granted. See, because when you start taking someone for granted, then you stop investing in that relationship. And relationships are always, uh, they're never stagnant. They're never, well, they're, they're, it's, it seems like they're always either going going toward the better or toward the worse. And certainly our relationship with God. Again, God's in control. You know, it's not all dependent upon, you know, it's not like God loves us less if we sin, right? But there's a real thing here where sometimes if we're not careful, we can take God for granted. And as we take Him for granted, we can slowly drift. Hebrews tells us, be careful that you don't drift away. And drifting away is a tremendous danger to the life of the Christian. Drifting is very dangerous. Be very careful. In this case, it starts out because my people have forgotten me. We don't want that to be said of us. Verse 16, to make their, I'm sorry, verse 18. Then they said, Come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor from the counsel of the wise, nor from the word of the prophet. Come and let us attack him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his words. And so now we see sort of an attack on Jeremiah the person, right? And 
Again, we've talked about the message and the person. In this case now, we see an attack on Jeremiah the person. And I want you to see this. When they attack Jeremiah the person, it's because they don't like his message. Okay? Sometimes, as Christians, you can just be a Christian. You can just, maybe the Lord, you know, the Lord convicts different people in different ways and different times and all that. You may have a certain conviction about something, and you may walk into a room with somebody who doesn't have that same conviction, and you could not even say a word about it, but there's something weird that goes on. It's like sometimes just being who you are, if you're faithfully following the Lord, can make other people uncomfortable. It's just a reality. Sometimes it can make other Christians uncomfortable. It's just a reality. Sometimes it can make family members uncomfortable. It's just a reality. In this case, Jeremiah is just saying what God has told him to say. He's just faithfully obeying the Lord. They don't like his message, and so they're going to come against him personally. Can I tell you if that ever happens to you? Well, there's a whole, that's a whole another lesson. But number one, just don't be surprised if it happens to you. You know, there's lots of scriptures in Proverbs and elsewhere how to deal with that. Um, I think a soft answer turns away wrath, right? Sometimes you just don't respond. I think when Jesus, you know, when Jesus was, was being tried, right? And they're throwing all these false accusations at him, right? What did he do? He just stayed quiet. Sometimes staying quiet is the wisest thing you can do. But in this case, Jeremiah is a prophet. He's being told by God to speak. He's speaking the message. They don't like the message. And notice how they come after him. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor from the counsel of the wise, nor the word from the prophet. So what are the, what's the priest, the wise, or the prophet? Those are experts. Those are experts. Can I tell you sometimes, if we choose to live biblically, and I'm convinced if we choose to live biblically in 2021 in American culture, then we will uh, find ourselves at times when biblical truth contradicts cultural experts. Is that fair? It, biblical truth contradicts cultural expertise. And what comes at, or at us sometimes is, well, what you're doing is not normal according to what the experts say, right? You've heard me go off on this probably too much, <laughs> but I have very little regard for experts as it compares to my regard for the Scripture. And we should always, I think, ask ourselves, whenever we're in a situation... Don't ask, what do the experts say? Even the Christian experts. Ask yourself, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible have anything to say to this situation, regarding this situation? Experts can be wrong. I've, seen, I've lived long enough to see experts be flagrantly wrong, way too many times. And uh, honestly, sometimes I think we can get a little bit spiritually and intellectually sloppy by just Whatever the experts say, that's what I'm going to do. Is that fair? 
that's without going off too far. But in this case, the experts are the ones that they're relying on as they attack Jeremiah. And so they're using expert opinion to attack Jeremiah. And now they're coming after him personally. So here's what Jeremiah says to that. He says, give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of those who contend with me. Shall evil be repaid for good? For they have dug a pit for my life. Remember that I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. Lord, don't forget, please, that I warned them and they are not listening, and now they're repaying evil for good. Therefore, here's what I'd like for you to do, Lord. Deliver up their children to the famine, and pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows and bereaved of their children. Let their men be put to death, their young men be slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you bring a troop suddenly upon them, for they have dug a pit to take me and hidden snares for my feet. Yet, Lord, you know all their counsel, which is against me, to slay me. Provide no atonement for their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight, but let you be overthrown. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal thus with them in the time of your anger. You like that prayer? (laughs) Well, if I had to be honest, I'd say it's kind of (laughs) cool. No, 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 no. We don't like that. The answer is no, we don't like that prayer, right? Now, I think this brings up a teaching point, right? We might say, hey, it's in the Bible, right? Lord, can you please kill these people that are bugging me? It's in the Bible, right? How many times did David pray that in the Psalms, right? That's like one of the subplots of the Psalms. Lord, they're after me. Please dash their heads against the rock and let their, you know, their wives be widows and their children be orphans and do it very graphically, please. You know, it's like those kind of prayers, right? Should we pray that way? Now, we've said before, I've, I'd like to point out that I've said in the past, you know, when Jeremiah's given this warning, we've seen examples thus far in Jeremiah how he's actually pretty compassionate towards the people. But now the attack is coming on him personally, right? And so now it's personal. And so how do we interpret Scripture? We let Scripture interpret the Scripture for us. All Scripture is to be interpreted in the context of Scripture. Is that fair? So turn over to Matthew chapter 5 to the right. Chapter 5, verse 43, Matthew. This is Jesus speaking. I think Jesus is the authority on biblical interpretation. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. All right. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Okay. So Jeremiah is a human. Jeremiah records his human words at a point of frustration. Jesus interprets those for us, and he, said, or he sort of gives us the right understanding on this, and he says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Can I tell you what's an amazing thing? What's amazingly powerful is for somebody to hate you, somebody to treat you like they treated Jeremiah, and for you to pray for them. That's powerfully disarming. Now, 
might they still hate you? Yeah. Are they going to, you know, they would hate Jeremiah no matter what he said, right? And, um, and that's sometimes the reality. But the truth is, for us, we're supposed to obey those words of Jesus. These are words of Jeremiah. They're not, they're not biblical mandates for us. And so that's the way that's, I think, to be interpreted. Chapter 19, just briefly. Uh, Thus says the Lord, Go and set a potter's earthen flask and take some of the elders of the people and, go, and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I will tell you. And so here we see, as we said uh, in chapter 18, you know, God told Jeremiah to go down to the potter's house by himself. This time he's going to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the potsherd gate, and this time he's taking some, uh, some of the elders of the people and the elders of the priests. Now, the Valley of Hinnom was an area, basically it was a garbage dump. It was where the garbage was burned. It was also, and I want to be as sensitive as I can, it's also a place um, where people um, sacrificed their children to Moloch. Okay, we'll just say that. And so it was an area of, of slaughter. It was an area of, of just, it was sort of a horrific picture of a place, right? And so this time, Jeremiah is told to go there. And go and get a potter's earthen flask this time. It's kind of interesting. Now, I want you instead, of, you know, last time we talked about a lump of clay. This time I want you to go get a hard piece of clay an earthen flask, and take with you. And say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of God of Israel, Behold, I will bring such catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. And so God is going to bring them to this horrible place to point out the fact that he's going to bring horrible catastrophe to the nation. Because they've forsaken me and made this an alien place, because they've burned incense in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers, the kings of Judah, have known, and have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. They've also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. And so again, these are horrible things to read, but it's the scripture, so we need to learn them. So because of all these things, God is bringing judgment. Keep in mind, these are Jewish people we're talking about. These are God's, God's people. These are religious people. They practice Jewish rituals. They celebrate the Passover, you know, and, and they do all these things. But at the same time, they're also serving these false idols and doing horrible things to these false idols, in the name of these false idols. And yet, if you're an outsider, let's say you're a Moabite or an Ammonite, right, if you're an outsider, you might look and you'd say, oh, I guess that's what Jewish people do, right? So think about, fast forward to our generation, right? If a non-Christian looks at our lives, looks at what goes on in the church and says, oh, I guess that's what Christians do, that could be a little convicting, right? 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 And so that's why, again, it's so important that we live biblically. Not that we live according to whatever 
Christian experts say we need to live or whatever, you know, some hierarchy says we need to live, but we need to live biblically. We need to uphold biblical truth. Because in this case, God says, you know, that whole thing with Baal, I didn't command that. By the way, that didn't come from me, that came from you. I didn't command that, nor did it even come into my mind. I wouldn't have even imagined that. God wanted them to clarify that he did not endorse this as a part of their Jewish life. We need to be careful that we give the world today a right understanding, a right example of what it means to be a Christian. Therefore, behold, verse 6, the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place shall no, be, no more be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And I'll make the void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hands of those who seek their lives. Their corpses I will give as meat for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth. I will make this city desolate and a hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all of its plagues. So again, these are hard words. But this is the judgment that's coming. And yet keep in mind the goodness of God. He's warning his people. And I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his friend in the siege and in the desperation with which their enemies and those who seek their lives shall drive them to despair. So again, these are hard words too, right? And you recall the nature of the warfare as history played out. The Babylonians would come, right? Basically what they would do, they'd surround the city and starve them out. And they were there for about a year and a half, starving out the people. And as the people were desperately starved out, and some of them were dying and, and all of that, they resorted to cannibalism. To which we'd say, that's crazy. I hope we would say, that's crazy. But I think it brings us to light an important point that we read last week. The human heart, apart from God... Chapter 18, verse 9, 17, verse 9, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. You know, the human heart, if I thought we were just an accident, uh, an evolutionary accident, you know, came from a blob of material, organic soup, got big banged into, you know, a protozoan and then a lobster and then a fish and or a fish and then a lobster, I forget which, and then a, you know, then a dog and then a primate and then me. If I thought that, which I don't. One of the things that would make me not believe that is the capacity of evil among human beings. Does that make sense? If this was all just an evolutionary, like, thing... Okay, I could get that, you know, a giraffe has a long neck because he can reach the trees. Whatever. Right? I get that a fish has the capacity to breathe underwater and I don't. I'll give you that. But I, I can't put into that evolutionary grid good versus evil and especially the depth of depravity and evil in this world. It has to be supernatural. And we know it's supernaturally orchestrated by Satan. Right? There's more evil in this world 
than what would be explained evolutionarily. Does that make sense? And that's bad news. Good news is, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, right? First John tells us. But I think there's a thing that maybe, and I, I kind of, the Lord's been stirring this in my heart a little bit this week, and so um, I want to share it. I think sometimes we as Christians, we're, you know, God has saved us. We recognize God has saved us. We're thankful that God has saved us. The Holy Spirit has indwelt us. You know, we can live according to the power of the Holy Spirit. We can have discernment according to the the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, you know, He can help us, guide us into all truth, as, this, as the Scripture says. And so, you know, sometimes I think we find ourselves in that place, knowing good from evil, knowing some biblical truth, exercising some wisdom and discernment, and we look at somebody who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, somebody who's rejected the Lord, somebody who's maybe not walking with the Lord, somebody who's, we'll say, just an unbeliever. Joe. We'll say the unbelieving Joe, right? And we'll look at that guy and we'll say things like, I can't believe he thinks that way. You ever find yourself doing this? I can't. Sometimes we, as Christians, I think too often we say, I can't believe that. And we kind of do a little scorn thing with our face. I can't believe they think like that. I can't believe they expect us to live the way they do. To which I would say, why are we surprised by that? Human beings resorted to cannibalism in the siege of the Babylonians in 588 to 586 B.C. Why would we expect anything less today? So as Christians, I think sometimes, if I could just graciously encourage us, sometimes I think we scorn the person that doesn't think like we do. And God help us. I mean, we all, I think, agree. I'd like to think every American agrees that we're a little too fractured in our society. And so let's not us be a part of the cause of that. Does that make sense? If they don't think like we do, it may simply be a factor of they don't have the Holy Spirit and we do, to which we shouldn't scorn. We should say, praise the Lord, I have the Holy Spirit, and be compassionate for them, for Joe. Reach out to them. Reach out to Joe. What's been the problem in the church for way too long? Church is kind of an exclusive, like, spiritual thing. And then, and what does Joe look at? Joe's, from the outside, from the outside, it just looks like a bunch of pompous people, right? And so, I don't know, the Lord's just, I'm just sharing with you what I feel like, maybe the Lord, maybe that's just for me, right? Which is very possible. But human beings have been capable of a lot of sin for a long time. Don't be surprised if you see sin in our world today. Don't be surprised if they don't see things the way we see things. And that's okay. That means God is not slack concerning His promise, but He's willing that all should be, repent. 
So verse 12. And we'll wrap up. Thus I will do to this place, says the Lord, and to its inhabitants, and make this city like Tophet. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled like the places of Tophet, because of all the houses of, on whose roofs they have burned incense to all the hosts of heaven and poured out drink offering to other gods. So because of all of the stuff that they've done, I'm going to bring punishment. And then Jeremiah came from Tophet, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy. And he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on this city and all her towns all the doom that I have pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their necks, that they might not hear my words. So he goes back to the city, proclaims the same message there in the temple. You notice the clay in chapter 18 was moldable. You notice the clay pot in chapter 19 was not. It was hard. It was not moldable. Again, a picture of our heart. We, like the clay, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, Ephesians chapter 2. As we surrender to him, we become moldable. As we don't surrender to him, we become hard. Ask yourself if you've ever experienced this, right? If you've ever had a time where I've, where I've walked away from the Lord, I've had these times, where I've walked away from the Lord, and the farther I walk from the Lord, the harder my heart can get dangerously, right? And the more I walk with the Lord, the more, mold, the more honestly, I feel like in my life now, I'm like, whatever, Lord. Crazy things seem to be coming in this world. I, I, I feel like, I mean, don't get me wrong, I still fret and get uptight and react and all that. But I feel like, whatever, Lord. You got it, Lord. You're smart I am, Lord. Thank God I don't have figured out, Lord. You figured out. I'll just do what, I'll just try to keep putting my spiritual foot one, front, one foot in front of the other. We need to be moldable. We need to be like the moldable clay and not like the hard-hearted clay. And along the way, recognize that as, he, as we are moldable, He will fashion us and mold us as seems good to Him, as it seems good to Him. And along the way, don't be surprised by opposition. Don't be surprised if other people don't get it. Other, don't be surprised if other people are, are capable of sin. Just compassionately pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those. And I think the Lord is honored through that. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this example of your goodness and your sovereignty. And Lord, we ask that you would cause us to be very moldable like wet, soft clay, that you can do whatever you want with as little resistance as possible from us, and that we would faithfully obey you, that you would empower us by the Holy Spirit to live faithfully, that you would empower us by the Holy Spirit to bless those who persecute us, that you would empower us by the Holy Spirit to be compassionate 
to those who have rejected you, that we would continue to, to try to reach out to those folks and that you'd be honored and glorified in our lives. So please just have your way with us in Jesus' name. Amen.